0: It is a delight, church, to um, once again have the privilege to stand behind this pulpit and open up the Word of God, um, and to spend some time in His Word, seeking the Spirit to speak to us, speaking wisdom from on high, uh, spe- seeking to hear the voice of our God. Uh, there is absolutely nothing I have said or will ever say uh, that has eternal worth. Um, but I, I'm here not to speak my thoughts, I'm here to share the word of God, so I would pray that God's eternal word would be implanted in your heart this morning. Um, and as I, as I meditate on, on time and um, the, the, the shortness of time I have left in New Orleans, um, you know, time is an important commodity. Uh, Many wise people, many shrewd people, many funny people uh, have noted the importance of time. Um, uh, Sayings like, you know, time you enjoy wasting is not wasted time. Or time is money. Or lost time is never found again. Or uh, time is the most valuable thing a man can spend. I think we would all agree the time is uh, of utmost importance in our lives. It's a precious, precious commodity. It's this thing we experience that we could just—we simply can't duplicate or replicate. It just goes on and on and on. And, and the way we use our time, how we actually go about using our time, is, is actually very important as well. And this is a lesson I've learned from you, dear church. Uh, I remember back in January of 2017 when I preached my first sermon here. And uh, Pastor Keith gave me uh, very little preparation. He said, hey, man, you're up on Sunday. Uh, and I said, wait, like this Sunday or like in three months Sunday or next year Sunday? No, no, you're up on Sunday. And I remember uh, praying and reading and, and praying and reading and doing some crying as well. Lord, I can't do this. And and stepping up behind this pulpit and preaching a sermon that I did not think was very good. Uh, but I was I was just pleasantly surprised and increasingly encouraged by the response you guys had to the sermon. I mean, you guys were coming up and hugging on me and you were happy. And and, and as, as, as a matter of fact, I noticed how differently you responded to my first sermon here when compared to some of the other guys. I mean, I'd, I'd been uh, been a part of this church for about eight months and, and it just struck me as, wow, the, either I did such a fantastic job or this is a really encouraging church. And, and it wasn't until I had a, a conversation with a dear friend uh, who comes to this church who we were commenting on the sermon. And, and I, I, I made notice of, of that uh, in, in exchange of how just you poured yourselves out to me that first sermon. And Uh, This is a dear friend, a trusted friend, a friend I come to frequently um, to ask him uh, for critiques of my ministry, of my skills, and and he used that opportunity to to kind of bring me down to earth. And he said, brother, the reason people were um, joyful and excited and ecstatic and were celebrating the beginning of your ministry at Lakeview is because uh, they're used to um, really long sermons here at Lakeview Christian Center. And... (laughs) And your sermon was uh, half the length of what they're typically accustomed to. Uh, So thank you guys for uh, helping me receive that lesson on the use of time. And it's a lesson I take with me. Uh, But this morning, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about a man who um, has a lot to say about time. Uh, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 90. And we're going to visit a psalm written by of the great prophet of the Old Testament, Moses. Uh, And here's a man at the end of his ministry, um, quite literally, his time is near the end, and he pours his heart out, years of ministry, years of walking before the face of God. And this is what the scriptures record as wisdom from God through a man as he comes to the end of his time with the people of Israel. Psalm 90. And let me ask you to do something we don't typically do here at Lakeview, but Um, Humor me. This is my last Sunday, right? So uh, would you stand with me as we read the word of God? Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of your hands. Let's pray together. Oh, great God. Speak. That we would hear your voice, Lord, and be transformed by your truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You guys may be seated. Oftentimes we struggle reading the Bible. If you're like me, as I've walked the Christian faith, I've oftentimes found a disconnect from the message of the Bible. I remember growing up and becoming a Christian and just the first years of Christian faith, it was difficult for me to read the Bible because I felt disconnected to it. I came to believe that because the people in the Bible, or I thought that the people in the Bible were really that different than me, that their message really wouldn't apply to me. Um, I mean, after all, their message is based on the events of their lives, their experiences, and so what they taught, and spoke of, and, 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 and shared as wisdom, as, as um, life practices, because their experience in life was so different than mine, then they just wouldn't get me. So I felt a natural disconnect between the lives of the authors of the pages of Scripture and my life, and therefore, I felt a disconnect from the message to them and to me. Maybe, maybe this describes your walk through Christian faith. So for example, look at the heading of this psalm that we just read. The, the, the verse numbers, the chapter numbers, these are later helpful additions to to the pages of Scripture. But this heading, this title, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, was in the original uh, um, Hebrew Scriptures as part of this actual song. So this is an example, for uh, uh, for example, of how how that disconnect just shows up in the content of Scripture. The heading says a prayer of Moses, the man of God, and I don't know about you, but maybe may, I'm pretty sure that you. This week, or the week before, or maybe this morning when you woke up, um, I'm pretty sure you did not begin your prayer to the Lord this way. Oh Lord, behold my prayer, a man of God. Or behold a prayer of uh, uh, Hope, a, a woman of God. Behold a prayer of Ronald, a, a man of God. I'm pretty sure you guys haven't introduced your prayers to God by calling yourself the man or the woman of God. God, it just seems so foreign to who I consider myself to be. And when you consider who Moses was and you consider his ministry and you consider the uniqueness of what this man did, he he was unique and different than any of us will ever be throughout his life. The things he did, the things he saw, the things that the Lord did through him. For him to say, I am the man of God, praying, that makes sense. When I consider my life and what I've done, what I've seen, for me to say, I am the... That does not make as much sense as when Moses says it. But but we make a serious mistake, though, by thinking that way. We make a serious mistake if we come to believe that the authors of the pages of Scripture and Moses himself is actually different from us. So consider a quick survey on the life of Moses... Moses was adopted. Did you know this? Moses grew up in a setting when he didn't really know his mom or dad. So, any single moms in the room? Anyone raised by a single mom or a single dad? Anyone have a less than ideal upbringing without the perfect family as someone that you could reference? Moses committed a serious crime that caused him to run away and hide for years. Anyone here do something in their past that they're really, really ashamed of? Moses went from living as an Egyptian royalty to working for his father-in-law in a farm. Anyone, years, anyone here have their lives fall apart? Maybe you flunked out of college. Maybe you got fired from a job. Maybe you did something so terrible that, that the promises of a good future are now dashed because of something you wound up doing. Moses had serious family issues. Get this, you, you, you may know the details of the story of Moses' life, you may not, but his brother and his sister actually spoke against Moses' wife behind Moses' back to the people of Israel. Does anyone have any family drama in their, in their, in their house, right? So just how different is Moses than we are? I mean, on the one hand, he is very different. The experiences of of witnessing the power of God firsthand. But if you think about it, he experienced life in similar settings to our own. And he lived through many of the same challenges we faced. So as this man, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes down the words of Psalm 90, these are not words written by a disconnected man who's lived a life of spiritual perfection. This is a guy like you and me. This is a guy who's seen some things like you and I have seen some things. And he's about to share wisdom with what to do with those things. And so I want to encourage us to listen to what Moses would have to say in Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is the oldest of the 150 Psalms. There's 150 of these song psalms, and this one is the oldest. It was the first one written. We don't know exactly when Moses wrote this psalm. Scholars believe that this is probably near the end of Moses' life and ministry. And more than likely, as Moses is writing this psalm, there's there's three events that have just happened in the life of Moses that lead to the the tone of the psalm. Um, You can read these in Numbers chapter 20. So things like the death of his sister Miriam, the death of his brother Aaron, and and God's punishment of Moses for the mistake he made in striking a rock when God told him to speak to the rock, and thus Moses being forbidding from entering the promised land. If you read Numbers 20, you'll notice that all those three events are bunched up together in about four paragraphs. So most scholars believe that Psalm 90 has its origin in that time frame. In other words, Moses is melancholic. He's deep in thought, reflecting on his life and ministry. And so as he writes this psalm, Moses is a man in transition. He's at the very end of his time with the people he's grown to love deeply. And I can certainly relate to that. So this morning, my desire is to spend time with Moses and the wisdom of God in this psalm. And to do that... Let's begin by looking at verse 1 again together. Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. According to the United States Census Bureau, a person living in the U.S. can expect to move 12 times throughout their life. How many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you have moved more than 12 times in your life? Raise your hand. Wow. How many of you have never moved? Raise your hand. Interesting. Next week will be the sixth time I move, but, but no one knows moving more than Moses. Moses is the great wanderer of the Bible. Forty plus years of moving from one place to another, to another, to another, and literally dying on the way. At the end of a 40-year road trip, rather than share tips on the best way to pack, Moses shares the most important lesson he learned throughout his life. A lesson that he gives us in the first verse of this glorious psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Moses is saying, God is, is my home. This is the realization that has come upon me after decades of life on this earth, after everything I've seen and done, after everything I've had and I've lost. God is my home. He's always been my home and he'll always be my home. And don't forget, but Moses, again, in a sense, he's homeless. He's still wandering in the wilderness as he writes this song. But even though he wanders, he's not lost. He is at home with the Lord. I wonder if the British writer J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, had Moses in mind when he wrote the following phrase, All that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. In the deep wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula, get this, Moses had no house, there were no grocery stores to get food, There was no U-Haul storage units to rent. There were no banks to get loans from. He wondered and wondered and wondered. But he didn't wonder aimlessly or hopelessly. Moses had something far more precious than gold, far more valuable than real estate, and had every need provided for. Where exactly? Where did Moses have a sense of dwelling? Well, he tells us this. Lord, you have been. Our dwelling place so a quick application for this idea is that this is a good reminder for us isn't it we may not be wandering in the wilderness like Moses did but let's face it guys it's pretty wild out there and there's a shortage of baby formula what's what's that about four dollar a gallon for gas rising interest rates continued supply chain issues around the world have you dared to look at your retirement account lately if you have one? It is wild out there. So the question I have for you is, where is your dwelling place? Now, the past two years have taught us anything is this, that at any moment, life can become extremely difficult, dangerous, and the things we depend on can quickly disappear. Now, remember, Moses knew this. And experienced those very realities. But he knew something greater. And this is why he begins this psalm by saying again. That his dwelling place was the Lord. But, but notice what else verse 1 says. Verse 1 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses recognizes something about God that is not unique to him. That Moses' experience is not unique. Moses is not the only wanderer in the stories of Scripture. Moses is not the only one who has come to receive and depend on the Lord. As a matter of fact, there is a litany of patriarchs before Moses. Joseph, Isaac, Abraham, and Noah all featured ideas of wandering and finding dwelling in the Lord. And the one consistent theme was precisely that, that God was with them, that God was enough for them. Look at verse 2 as Moses continues. Moses says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Generation after generation, God's people found refuge in the Lord because God is from everlasting to Everlasting. I remember growing up as a kid in Honduras where I'm from. Um, we, we always had these big dinner parties around Christmas time and New Year's Eve. So in Hispanic culture, uh, New Year's Eve is this really big thing. And we, we have dinner at around midnight to celebrate the, the coming of the new year. And and I'm a Hispanic man, but my dad's part of the family. They're Italian. So I'm, I'm Hispanic and Italian. And I am here to testify that all of the stereotypes about food and loud families and all those are true guys. It's just imagine a house full of dozens of dozens of family members. This was my experience growing up. My mom and her sisters would throw these parties at our, our house and everyone who was remotely related to me would show up at the house. I don't know how, how any of these people fit. I would meet some of my relatives at these parties. But what struck me about these parties was my mom and her sisters would, would, they dwell in the kitchen and and from the kitchen, I would notice that, that endless hordes of food would come out and more people would come to the party. More food came out of the kitchen. More people came to the party. More food came out of the kitchen. And people ate and gorged themselves with all different types of food and four different types of protein and six different types of rice and all sorts of salads and desserts and drinks. And, and, and at the end, the craziest thing, it seemed like even after all the food that was eaten, it seemed like there was more food and leftovers than what we had at the beginning. It was the craziest thing. We would have leftovers for weeks on end. God's ability to provide refuge for his people is kind of like that. His supply never runs out because it can't. He is from everlasting to everlasting. God owns a, a hotel of blessings with infinite rooms in it. And there is ample space for any and all his people to come. You will never hear. You will never hear the words, there is no room for you, if you come to God seeking a place of dwelling and refuge. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Moses uses the language of the mountains. Before the mountains were f- brought forth. And I wonder if he's thinking of the time early on in his life in Mount Sinai. Moses had seen a number of of unbelievable displays of the power of God, the ten plagues that God used to bring judgment on the nation of Egypt. But but there's probably no more transforming event in the life of Moses than him being called up to the mount and the Lord himself revealing his glory and power. And then Moses asking, God I want to see more, show me your glory. And, and God tells him, I, I can't do that because you'll be, you'll be smeared on the side of this mountain so let me hide you on the side of this rock to protect you. I, I wonder if, if as Moses is writing this psalm, his mind goes to that event of his life. Moses reflects something we all know, that mountains are old, but, but, but God is older. Ma- mountains are majestic. God is more majestic. The earth, it says, ever you had formed the earth and the world. We know that the earth is ancient, but God is from everlasting to everlasting. And Moses knows this. Moses wrote, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. God is reflecting on the eternality of God as he considers his finiteness. God alone is eternal. God is timeless, permanent, unchanging, immovable, incomparable. And this God, this God whom Moses knows, this is the God whom Moses speaks of when he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Friends, listen to the wisdom of Moses. The experiences of our lives leave us with this fact. Our lives will change. Everything about our lives will change. But God is unchanging. God is from everlasting to everlasting. And Moses invites us. He invites you. To build your life on that everlasting God. So as Moses thinks of God's timelessness and majesty, he he does so, he he, he responds in how we would naturally respond. He starts thinking about God and then, well, let me start thinking about me. How do I stack up with God? And so look there at verse 3. Moses reflects on the nature of humanity. Verse three: You return man to dust, and say, "Return, O children of man!" Raise your hand if you think you know when you're going to die. Weird question, but raise your hand if you if you think you know when you're going to die. No, not, no hands. Raise your hand if you think you can predict with 95% accuracy when you will stop breathing and go on to be with the Lord. Raise your hand. Well, I'm here to inform you guys that you may not know these things, but Google does. And I'm not joking. A few years ago, a story broke out over the, media, uh, over the media that Google Medicine, a division of Google that uses artificial intelligence to to uh, uh, do you know, to help the medical community, um, you know, study and research and stuff. Um, they have a a division uh, created for this purpose using artificial intelligence. If you if you they ran this study in these hospitals in, 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 in England. Where people would come into the hospital, and um, for whatever reason, hey, I you know, uh, a regular checkup, or hey, in diabetes, or hey, whatever, and th- they would take uh, uh, you know b- b- biological th- data about that person, and they would they would take that stuff and then put it on uh, Google's AI server, and then Google would begin to predict, okay, because you have this, 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 you're going to die here, you're going to die there, you're going to die there, and uh, the the scientists were pretty excited because in some cases, Google was able to predict with 95% accuracy, uh, people's actual death. So, so there you go. The conspiracy theory, people were right. This is all a simulation. We're in the matrix. Nothing's real. Um, no, that's not a joke, by the way, that's a real thing. Google thinks it knows when you're going to die. Well, this is what Moses is thinking of. Moses is thinking of death He reflects on what has been of his life and what's left of it and then reflects, compares that with the eternality of God. You return man to dust. Like I said earlier in the sermon, he's more than likely thinking of the people that he has seen return to dust. Moses is probably reminiscing on his beloved older sister Miriam. If you remember the story, Miriam is single-handedly responsible for getting Moses into the hands of the daughter of Pharaoh. So she took part in rescuing Moses when he was a baby floating in the Nile River, and he gets rescued as a result of the shrewdness and care of Miriam. So his big sister winds up helping raise him, or at least secure a place for his raising. He's likely thinking of Aaron as well. He's just buried Aaron as well. Now, who was Aaron in Moses' life? You'll recall the story that God summons Moses and God gives Moses this unbelievable task to go before the most powerful man on the planet and to testify to the existence of the sovereign God of the universe. And Moses responds by saying, I don't speak no good. And God says, all right, well, your brother does. And so he's going to partner with you for the rest of your life. And, And here is Moses, the great prophet of the old Testament Walking for decades with the high priest of the Old Testament, Aaron, next to each other, ministering to the people of Israel. He's gone now. Moses is likely thinking of the many Israelites who who walked through the Red Sea and who will not make it into the promised land because they have died on the way there. Their own unfaithfulness to God, their own rebellion, their own idolatry caused God to judge them rightly. And their bodies have littered the landscape of this wilderness. And Moses is more than likely reflecting on himself. I will soon die and I will not get to see what I was promised because I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Moses has death and dust on his mind. Again, this is Moses. You'll recall that Moses, Moses, God gave Moses the revelation that humankind was created from dust. God, in an incredible act of infinite power, creativity, ingenuity, skill, the great craftsman of heaven, sticks his hand down into the dirt and from it fashions human life. We are created from dust. But after sin, you'll recall we came under penalty. And so in Genesis chapter 3, Moses is given the following words By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So please notice that death is not something that's up to fate. Death is not an event in human experience. It's up to chance. It's not something controlled by some unseen force out there in the universe. Death is not an accident, nor is it merely a product of biological processes in the human body. Death is a sovereignly appointed act of God. God himself directs our days. God directed the moment we were born, and God directs the moment we come to our death. He is sovereign over every moment of our time here on earth. He says this so much. This is what he's referring to in verse 3. You return, man, to dust. You return, O children of man. He continues in verse 4. He says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Time affects us very differently than it affects God. No one tells God when he is born and when he is to die because God is from everlasting to everlasting. You and I, however, respond to his sovereign decree. And God said, you'll be born this day, and God will say, we will all pass away this day. Time affects us very differently than it affects God. To him, time is nothing. To us, not only do we come to know death in time, but time literally, time literally wears us down. In 1817, the English poet Percy Shelley wrote a poem She titled Ozymandias. That year, the British Museum in London had acquired a statue of Ramses II, an Egyptian pharaoh that lived many centuries before, considered by many people who study Egyptian pharaohs to be the greatest pharaoh in the history of all the Egyptian dynasties. So this person writes this poem reflecting on a piece of of a statue, not the whole statue, but a piece of a statue that was going to make it to the London Museum. And she writes this poem. The poem goes this way. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them on the sand, Half sunk and shattered visage lies whose frown. And wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Till that its sculptor well those passions read. Which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them in the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. No thing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. This poem is a mockery. And isn't it interesting that time has not been kind to Ramses II? Considered to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, pharaoh of Egyptian dynasty, many of you had not heard his name till right now. And worse, the only reason most people remember who he is is because of a poem written to mock him. Time is not kind to us, and Moses understands this firsthand. You'll recall that Moses has seen this happen. He's seen the power of God and the influence of God come up against an Egyptian pharaoh. He's witnessed what the power of God can do to the power of men. What about you? How has the passage of time treated you? Moses re- re- reflects on our nature that our lives are like grass renewed in the morning, but it it, it withers away there, there's, a, there's a flashpoint of of a of beauty and growth. you know the old saying, "April showers bring may flowers right uh, We have these bushes in a front ho- in, the, in our house that a month ago had these beautiful pink flowers blooming and just beautiful, and now they 're all gone i don 't even remember them that, that's that's what is being appealed to here. How has the passage of time treated you? Have you taken stock of what time has done to you? Well, this week I was forced to do that. I went to the doctor to get my very first uh, yearly physical because I've got to that official age where that stuff just kind of have to be important now. And um, some of you that are a little older than me, uh, you're, you're kind of rolling your eyes, going, oh, Ronald, you don't know the half of it. Right, you just, you, 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 like, don't freak out just yet, man. It's, it's only downhill from one physical, poof, rookie. You just don't know, man. You just don't know what awaits us. I have no idea what awaits me. But we all know that the passage of time is not kind to us. And all of us are under its effect. And as a result of the passage of time and its effect, consequently and necessarily death comes to us all. I, I don't mean to be morose. I don't mean to be weird. My last sermon with you guys. But, but this is something that inevitably has all of our attention. And it has had all of humanity's attention for a long time. And I, I'm going to use another Google reference just because that's what happened to show up in my research this week. But in 2013, everyone's trying to deal with this issue of death and time, right? In 2013, Time Magazine featured a cover story titled, Google versus death. The story featured details of a new project Google was working on. And here's the project. Here's their goal. Defeating death. This was back in 2013. And and let me spoil this for you guys. But Google hasn't figured it out yet. It can't. This is unavoidable. But, But notice the wisdom of Moses here. Notice the difference in humanity's approach manifested in Google's approach to the problem of death. What Google thinks it can do and should do in the face of death. Versus what Moses does. And how Moses responds to the reality of time and death as inevitable results of human life. Google will lead you to believe that this is something humanity has control over. That we just need the right medicine, the right technology... Use our collected minds in such a way, empowered by computers and AI, and we will finally solve this because this is something we have our hands on. Moses goes the completely opposite route. Moses has no hands over the power of death. Actually, he throws his hands to the air, and he submits his life to the giver of life. Look in Psalm 90, verse 7 there. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The Apostle James puts it this way in the New Testament in James 4.14. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say... If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Moses appeals to humility. Moses recognized that in the the order of things, there is one who has control over life and death. And that is no company called Google, called alphabet, whatever their new name is going to be that there is a place for the human heart to submit themselves to the plans for life and death under the merciful hand of a mighty God. And this is the wisdom Moses shares with us this morning. Now, you may be asking yourself, "Yeah, Ronald, I get that, but why do we die? I mean, like, people keep dying, like, why does that happen? Why is death part of the story of life? Well, the scriptures would tell us that we die because we have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. This is what Moses is referencing here when he uses the language of wrath. The death is God's judgment on humanity, a humanity that rebelled and continues to rebel against a holy God. And Moses recognizes this fully. He has seen rebellion firsthand. He has witnessed it with his eyes and he's been responsible for it in his heart. He understands that our very lives are subject to the gaze of God's holy eyes. Look at verse 8 again. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. Friends, there is no internet search engine with privacy, you know, filters on it that can keep the gaze of the infinite God from knowing your secret sins. There is nothing outside of God's awareness. God sees into the hearts of men. He knows what we think. He knows what we feel. We cannot hide anything from the gaze of God's holy eyes. Our entire existence is an open book to the mind of God. But, but notice the connection here. Notice the connection. Before you feel the judgment and the condemnation. That sin naturally and immediately wants to produce in you. Do not run away from this, this idea. While we can hide nothing from God. While our sins Are as clear to God as the light of day is to us. There is a connection between our iniquities. And the presence of God. For those whom God is a dwelling place. For those who have known God as a dwelling place. There is a connection between our secret sins. And the presence of God. God does not expose our sins from a distance. God doesn't look from heaven with a telescope to figure out what we've done. Our sins are revealed in the light of his presence. By coming to him, by being in his presence, are our sins revealed before God. So feel the force of what is being said here. People who know themselves to be under the wrath of God have no other sheltering than the God whose wrath they have provoked. And He has welcomed them in. He has welcomed them in. There is no other shelter There is no other place that you and I can hide from when it comes to our sins. There is nothing, there is no place we can go to hide from our sins except the very presence of the God whose wrath is now directed towards us because of our sin. Yet, as Moses testifies in this psalm, we are welcomed into his presence. We find Refuge, we find a dwelling place in the presence of this God. Now, how do we get there? What in the human heart propels feet to walk towards the wrath of God? I would argue that the pathway to the presence of God is paved with bricks made of humility. And that humility is found with wisdom gained by reflecting on our mortality. This is what he said in verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Humility. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. That the earth belongs to the meek. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For they shall see the face of God. So some applications here. Time. The use of time. The the shortness of our life. The brevity of our life. Young people. Don't waste your life. Young people. It's graduation season. Some of you have just graduated. Don't waste your life. Your life matters. Time matters. Do something of eternal Wait and, 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 and give yourself over to something to make a difference. You're going to be drawn in by by entertainment, by, by, by self-satisfaction, by a number of distractions in this life. You have one life. Make good use of it. Make a difference. Come to know the God that Moses knows. I can guarantee you that your life will not be like Moses's. I can guarantee you that you will not lead... A million plus people through a wilderness, through an ocean that's split in half, received ten sacred commandments from the very mouth of God, reside in a mountain for multiple days. You know, I can guarantee you that that's probably not going to be the story of your life. But I can guarantee you that you could build upon eternity if you give yourself over to Kingdom work. Don't waste your life, young people. Old people, don't waste your life. You're still here with us. Don't, don't I, thought, I thought hard about how to say this without being controversial, and I'm going to try not to. There is something greater for you than retirement. There is something more important of everlasting value than retirement. If you think your time on earth is done, it's not. How do I know that? Because you're still here. Don't waste your life. All people pursue humility that comes by knowing that your life stands under the watchful eye of a sovereign God who has and will judge you. And thanks be to God, right, for those who know Christ, that there is no longer no condemnation. So come to Jesus. Come to know the Savior that releases us from the wrath of God. I'm so glad Psalm 90 doesn't end here, doesn't end with verse 12, and Psalm 90 continues. But verse 12 does function as a hinge. It it, it pivots. The psalm goes somewhere from here. Moses sounds a certain way before verse 12, and he sounds a different way after verse 12. And by the way, verse Psalm 90 is a prayer. So if you're if you're if you're struggling with how to pray, if you've ever tried to pray. Like, like, how do I pray? What are we including prayer? Go read Psalm 90 and meditate on it and, and formulate your prayer based on the pattern of Psalm 90. This is a prayer, it's titled as such. And, and more than likely, you're going to sound in your prayer sometimes like the beginning of Psalm 90. And then maybe further on, as you reflect on who God is, hopefully you'll sound like the tail end of Psalm 90. But reflecting on his mortality and eternality of God has had practical effects on Moses' heart. This hasn't led him into depression. This hasn't led him into anxiety. Something's been birthed in this man's heart. And you read this in verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the work of your hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So Moses cries out, Lord, return. Lord, help me. Lord, satisfy us. Lord, make us glad in the face of our temporary difficult lives that inevitably and necessarily lead to death Let your favor be upon us. Why? Why? So we could know good fortune until we die? No. Because Moses knows that while this life will give way to death, God is an everlasting dwelling place. And those who have found refuge in him have found refuge for. Eternity. This is what Moses is crying out to. Lord, I've got this experience in my life that includes death. I've seen it. My brother, he's gone. My sister, he's gone. People in Israel are gone. I'm old. I'm about to be gone soon. But Moses knows. But death has no effect on you. In in the same way that time has no effect on you, death has no effect on you. And and I have found a dwelling place in in, in you. And so if God is from everlasting to everlasting and I dwell in everlasting to everlasting, what is on the outside of death? It's God. I get to live forever forever. I get to enjoy God from everlasting to everlasting. So naturally, he says, return, Lord. Come, satisfy us. Give us yourself. Keith, you can come back up, man. I'm going to read a quote, and then we'll pray. Um, I would highly recommend that you guys... Um, Go to Amazon or Google or whatever and buy a book by a man, by a pastor, Robert McCullough. The book has a strange name. We've, we've quoted on this book um, a number of times here. The book is called Remember Death. It's a short little book. It's a black book. Um, remember Death. It's a, it's a phrase, um, a translation of a Latin phrase that the Puritans would, would engage with a lot. Memento mori. Remember Death. And this idea that that, that death is this thing, that, that he's going to make the argument that the best thing a believer can do is not forget about death. It's just to think of death and think of death often. And so he writes, good things never last. Time and death turn sweet seasons of life into painful memories of what's been lost. This world is a marvelous place. We enjoy the beauty of its landscapes, its music, its art, and culture. And above all, we enjoy its people. I've enjoyed, well, I've not enjoyed the landscapes of New Orleans. I've not enjoyed those, but I've enjoyed its music. I've enjoyed its art. I've enjoyed its cultures, and I've enjoyed the people here. Our spouses and children, our parents and grandparents, our brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors. Yet it's precisely our love of good things in life that gives death its power over us. Under death's shadow, time and decay reach as far as our love. And their grip on the things we love is stronger than ours. One of the goals in this book is to help us recognize the shadow of death in places we may not have seen it before. Death is a biological event. The end of the heart's beating, the lungs breathing, the brain processing. But, but it is also far more There's no confining death to the moment at which our life ends. Its effects are everywhere. Death is not so much an event as a process with a final culmination. A siphoning process that separates us from what we love so that, in the end, everyone loses everything. Now that sounds a lot like Psalm 90 verse 12, right? That sounds a lot like where where we've been, but... Pastor McCullough continues and he says, but when we recognize this truth, when we acknowledge it and don't shrink back from it, we join the path to deeper, fuller joy in the promise of a deathless world where what we love won't ever pass away. A world promised to us by the one who is the resurrection and the life. So friends, remember death. Remember death. Because as you remember death, your heart will be turned to God. And you will be reminded that he has power over death. That he has defeated death at the cross. And that he has ushered in eternal life so that his people would know him. Would find refuge in him from everlasting to everlasting. Let's pray together. Father, we are we are mortals, Lord. We are creations of your hand, Lord. Designed in unique ways, Father. Designed with gifts, with abilities, with propensities. To do great things. To experience great things. To enjoy great things. To make an impact. To, to influence. To steer. To create. To mold. To leave long legacies. To be remembered. Yet we remain mortal, Lord. Our strength dries up, our resources and our very life, Lord, leaves us. But Lord, you have been our dwelling place. For all generations, Lord. From everlasting to everlasting, you have been our dwelling place. In the face, O oh Lord, of that which will take All of us out. You remain our dwelling place. The greatest enemy of our soul. And our body. Death Lord. Have been so defeated. That they are unaware. That they've participated. In your act. Of bringing us. To your presence. They don't know this. Death thinks it claims victory over the death of a saint, but it does not know what it's done. It's opened the door to eternal life. It's allowed entryway into your presence. It's been defeated twice. So, Father, in the midst of many deaths. Lord, there may be. Brothers and sisters here, Father, who are experiencing loss in a number of different categories. Who are afraid of maybe loss that's on the other side of the corner, Lord. Transitions, the loss of job, the loss of income, the loss of family. Lord, would you remind us that you are our dwelling place. You have been our dwelling place and you will continue to be our dwelling place. For all generations. Father we pray for your spirit to. Move in us. To live in such a way Lord. That we are not waiting on death. But to live in such a way Lord. That we are harnessing the life you've given us. Using it, Lord, for kingdom purposes. Lord, I pray for the young people in the room, Lord. A season of transition in their lives, Father. As they begin to venture on into adulthood. Those graduating, Father, from high school. Those graduating from college. Maybe careers are beginning, oh Lord. That your spirit would draw them for everlasting purposes. That you would fill them, Lord, with your presence. Lord, that you would steer them for great things, Lord. That they would see their lives as a tool in the hands of the almighty life giver. Lord, I pray for seasoned saints as well. Father, there may be someone in the room who maybe is counting the days. Maybe wanting the days to come quick. They see no value in their contribution to the church to your purposes lord they think of themselves as less than father would you would you invigorate through your spirit life in their hearts father would they recognize that you have created them in the image and likeness of god and because of that lord they are divinely empowered and appointed to do great things for your kingdom lord To pray for your work here at lakeview father this beloved church I pray for these elders these men who have been such examples of faith to me I pray Lord that you would bless them father these brothers have experienced death recently Lord would you anoint them with your spirit would you breathe life into their weary hands that they would respond O oh Lord to the next stage of the life and ministry of this church Oh, Lord, bless us. Satisfy us, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen. It has been a delight, church. And we will see y'all next week. Thank y'all for those joining through live stream. you have a good day.